I met Shalon for the first time in one of the virtual faculty happy hours. Her voice reminded me of a very soft-spoken family friend, Margaret, whose birthday is actually tomorrow. Happy birthday, Margaret. And her temperament reminded me of Kevin, my brother-in-law. She came across as a very even-keeled person, just like Kevin. And I was extremely ecstatic when she reached out and expressed interest in wanting to help out with this project. After a few unexpected delays, we finally got a chance to chat. Here's our conversation. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> so far, so good. How are you? Fine, thank you. It's very nice to finally meet you. Yes. Thank you for agreeing to be interviewed by me. And I know we had some phone tag issues or email tag issues, but thank you for finally, well, I I hope everything got sorted out just fine. Yeah. It's been a a unusual time, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Absolutely. So what's the provenance of your name and how do you say it? I don't want to mispronounce or butcher it. Um, it's Shalon and okay. my parents were, uh, I, I want to say, um, kind of late bloomer hippies. Okay. Um, and <laughs> I was born, uh, in the early seventies and uh, in East Tennessee. Um, and, um, I, I think my parents were trying to be, um, just original. And my dad had just come back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know if there was that, that kind of an influence, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a challenge because I am by nature a very introverted. And, um, as a kid, we moved around a lot. And so I was always the new kid. I went to 17 different schools by the Holy time cow. I was a junior in high school. So, uh, it was hard to have an unusual name. Well, I, I have but, to confess, I don't think I've ever met. But I married a bull. You married a bull. All right. Well. Yeah. Very cool. I, I didn't know so if same it bowl, had. different day. <laughs> I, I didn't know if it had any, uh, well. So the last individual I spoke with, she had a. A unique name as well. I don't want to say unusual, but she has a unique name as well. And it came as a result of her dad combining his name with her mom's name. Because I, you know, with my grandmother, I used to talk about names and, and where they come from. And typically it would be, you know, they, they typically have grandparents' names or uh, religious or cultural connotations typically, you know, supersede mm-hmm. other factors. But in this case, yeah, I, I have never met someone with the last person's name and I've never met someone with your name either. So very cool. Yeah. That's two in a row. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I know that you were born in East Tennessee. Tell me something else about yourself or tell me whatever you'd like to share. Um, gosh. Um, people are typically surprised to find out I graduated high school in the Keys so that's kind oh, of cool. unique about me, I think. Yeah. Um, so you don't meet too many people um, that uh, lived in the Keys. How did you end up in from Tennessee um, in the Keys? 
Um, my father, um, he got, uh, he worked uh, in the nuclear power industry, mm-hmm. uh, and that that was part of the East Tennessee um, area. There's uh, some big power plants out that way, uh, nuclear power and hydroelectric. Um, and so he got some training with that, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. And we moved around a lot. So he, he would take these short-term uh, contracts and mm-hmm. we would just move around to various places. And eventually he got into fossil fuel. And he, uh, when I was in high school, I took a, a contract with Turkey Point, which is in Miami, you know, we're kind of in the homestead area. And that's how we ended up in the Keys. Very cool. So, yeah, I don't think I, I know anyone who's graduated from high Florida. school in the Keys either. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm pretty where, unique. where did you go to college? What did you study? Is that what you wanted to study? Oh, um, I, I went to the University of Florida mm-hmm. um, and I got both my undergraduate and my graduate degree there. Um, I, my undergraduate degree, I got a bachelor of science in human nutrition and uh, food science and human nutrition. Uh, and I got my master's degree in, uh, from UF uh, in human nutrition as well. And then I did an, an internship. I'm a registered dietitian. Mm-hmm. And I did my internship at Florida Hospital in Orlando. And um, I got married and <laughs> I worked at a hospital in Gainesville for a while. And then we moved down here um, and I worked at a hospital and I, ha- I joined the college in 2001 as an adjunct. Um, so I've been with the school for, oh my goodness, 19 years now. Wow. But I, I went full-time. Uh, I was temporary full-time for a year and a half. And then uh, now I'm, I'm uh, full-time in 2019. So that's my story. Very cool. How did you meet Mr. Bull? Yeah. Um, I met him at a party um, in Gainesville, and uh, I wanted to sit on a couch, and I told him to scoot over. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll actually um, we'll be married 22 years um, at, at the end of uh, May. Congratulations! Years. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to believe I I'm this old to tell you the truth. <laughs> time goes by fast it does especially when you're having fun when you when you don't see it going by mm-hmm. it, it's it's at least you're having a good time and if it passes quickly that's okay yeah so how come well talk me through how you ended up not at palm beach state necessarily but how did you end up teaching oh um well i have well, it's kind of a complicated story. Um, my, as you can imagine, um, you know, I, I've gone to, I went to 17 different schools by the time I was a junior in high school. Sure. So the, the back story of that is um, my family was very financially insecure, uh, truthfully. Um, and I always had to work and I worked in at college and I would always have two or three jo- part-time jobs, 
you know, a work study job, something on campus, um, I, plus going to school full time. Um, and then when I graduated um, and I got a full time job, it was boring and I needed <laughs> I had a lot of free time and I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, and so one of the dietitians that I worked with at the hospital, um, she was moving and she had taught at the, uh, the college uh, up there in Gainesville. And she was like, I'm, you know, there's gonna be an opening, maybe you should apply. And I, that's how I got into it. And I loved it. And I had been um, a clinical dietitian working in the hospital uh, with critical care. And, and going into teaching was so much more upbeat and positive. And, and on the prevention side. And it was so wonderful to talk to people about nutrition, about making food choices um, when they you know, were beginning their lives, beginning, you know, making these, um, these decisions uh, on how to eat uh, and how to be, uh, rather than going in and having a, a patient in the ICU or the, the NICU or someone who's had a stroke or, um, someone who's on dialysis. And so it was just, it was so much more upbeat and positive and I really enjoyed it. So that's how I got into teaching. Very cool. Do, do you and find I just fell that, into it. do you find, uh, well, how do you balance, I guess, uh, the, the specific demographics or not balance, but how do you, um, what's the question I have? Our students are not the most wealthy. I'll start with that mm -hmm. assumption. Uh, and I think most people would agree to that. Uh, what I have found through reading or just classroom observations is that frequently those that are perhaps not, you know, don't have access to uh, quote unquote healthy foods tend to make choices that don't align with well, their health, they, they make choices motivated by, uh, well, financial needs or not perhaps mm -hmm. needs, but financial resources, let's put it that way, that they uh, tend to gravitate towards choices that perhaps would keep more money in their pocket for a rainy day. So how do you balance that with, hey, you need to be eating leafy greens, but <laughs> you know, what do you say to a student that says, I can't afford that? So how do you deal with that? Because I'd imagine that that would show up frequently in a class uh, at Palm Beach State, perhaps not elsewhere, but at Palm Beach State that that might, uh, that to topic might get broached. It definitely would. Um, but one of my guiding principles as a, a registered dietitian is we um, can just do the best that we can. And we don't always have to be perfect. Um, and just making better choices more often. And one of the things that I do find with my students, and I, I do think that you're correct with, uh, with your description, is some of them have never even thought about why they're eating the way that they do. Um, and so if I could just make that dent, or like have them just you know, take a look at, this is why I'm eating the way that I am. These are the choices that I'm making, and why am I making that? Um, those, those choices, those decisions. Um, and so just having that part um, really gives me hope uh, and gives meaning to, to what I do. Uh, 
And that's really my goal is just to spread the information because maybe we can't make um, the best choices today, but gathering that knowledge so that we can, as we attain our education and as we move forward and we have a better financial situation, we can apply that uh, to bettering ourselves. And one of the things that I really find wonderful about my job is I'll have students come up to me and tell me, I was sharing with my mom the things that we were talking about in class. I was sharing with my grandfather. I was talking to my friends and we were you know, discussing and we made some better, you know, different choices than we would normally would. Um, so it, it impacts not only themselves, but their relationships with others. And so while we can't always, you know, have the, the perfect um, meal or the perfect diet, um, you know, just getting that knowledge and having that conversation um, about our food choices and about eating and about making those healthy decisions that is important and a, a great first step. It is. I, I, for whatever reason, I gravitate towards, um, how shall I say this? fixing things as opposed to so my girlfriend always accuses me or, or says in a very angry voice progress not perfection you know I, i'm guilty of of shooting for the end goal in my first attempt and saying hey you know if instead of changing students attitudes towards mathematics which i think i've gotten better at over the past few years uh, i want them by the end of my class to be able to appreciate the things that they learn and not necessarily, you know, like you said, become amazing mathematicians or have the perfect diet, but at least walk away with an appreciation for, okay, so this is why this weird Indian guy studies this, and this is why he chooses to teach it, and this is why some people find it enjoyable. Uh, whether they themselves find it enjoyable is a whole different story, but I think in my younger years, or when I had just started teaching, uh, my mindset, or at least my preparation, was always towards... I need every single person in this class to want to become a mathematician like me, which I don't think is realistic. And over the years, I've realized that I'm not sure that that's a good idea either. I, I don't think a world full of mathematicians would survive terribly long. But no, it, it's, it's something I've had to learn. How did you, I mean, was that always innate in you that you hoped for people to progress a little bit at a time? if they weren't able to make the perfect choices? Or is that something uh, that happened over time? Um, it's actually a, a kind of like a guiding uh, principle um, mm -hmm. in the science of nutrition that we have to be realistic and that if we are going in and making these drastic changes on a patient's diet, um, then we typically don't get long-term adherence. But if we make small changes, uh, if we pick one or two things that we can focus in on at, at a time, have people become comfortable with that, then we see that they begin to take ownership of those decisions. Um, you, know, you know, change is very difficult. Um, and, you know, starting small is really, um, tends to be the, the, the pathway to success in terms of the making changes. And food is, and how we eat is so tied in 
to everything, how we feel, how we see the world, how we relate, how we communicate with others. Uh, if there's um, a celebration, food. If there is, if we're grieving something, there's food. If there's, you know, so food is in every aspect of our lives and to change that relationship that's so core to how we view ourselves, that's, that's a difficult time that's a, because it's so tied in with how we perceive ourselves and our place in the world. Have you, or can you think of an individual or a group perhaps where you thought that th there's no way I'm going to be able to make any headway with this individual or with this group in terms of not changing habits, but influencing them in a positive way. And then, you know, that did happen where it was a pleasant surprise. Oh, um, I have a lot of students like that. Um, but they come in with these preconceived ideas um, or th these ideas about what a good diet is or what good nutrition is that are, I believe, greatly influenced by social media or greatly influenced by marketing in general. Um, so I'll have students who, who will talk to me in class about that will, that will just throw out, oh, GMOs are bad, organic is the way to go, uh, just all of these kind of like buzzwords um, and without really an understanding of the science, but just an idea that those are, you know, these society held beliefs. Um, so one of my the goals really uh, in my nutrition classes is to just really explore the science of nutrition. Um, and a lot of my students are, are very surprised <laughs> as we delve into the actual science, the biology, uh, the chemistry that's involved in it. Um, and it's not, we're not just talking about you know, different diets, but we're actually talking about how the body, the pathophysiology, how the body handles it. Um, so there's, it's, it's an interesting science. Um, and sometimes I don't think that I make a lot of headway um, in convincing people but what I, what a goal for me is, is questioning. Maybe they're, they, they've, they've had this idea uh, and they didn't question it. GMOs are bad, for example. But with what we've learned in class and the information that we go over and the readings, <laughs> uh, the science, maybe they start to question that. Um, and I think that is a win for me. Maybe I don't necessarily have to convince them but just get them to be open to question, open to looking at it and, and wondering about it. Uh, and I think that that would be something that um, I strive for every semester, just to have them question. <laughs> I, I'm guessing that some of the people listening to this podcast and well, myself included, uh, probably believe in some things uh, incorrect that we might have read on the news or perhaps uh, read something on Facebook. So would you mind sharing some popular myths that, sh that should be dispelled or that ought to be dispelled from the hive mind as it oh, were? My oh my goodness. There's so many uh, in nutrition. Um, as I mentioned, one of the things that I'd like my students um, you know, to, to come away with is that there are no bad foods. 
Um, and typically I'll tell my students that in class and I, I look around the room and look at all their different expressions and they're like, what? That is so not what we've heard. There's so many bad foods. Uh, but then I clarify by saying, there's no bad foods, it's just bad portion sizes. Uh, but one of the things from a, a purely um, a nutritional science background is that if we, there are no bad foods and we, as humans, we put these judgments on them and this is a good food, that's a bad food, but it, it's just all food, it's all food. Um, and when we can understand that and kind of you know, accept that, that premise, um, we can start delving into the relationship that we have with food. So that, that's definitely something that uh, is a, a, a big issue for me uh, because I would like students to have that understanding. And we also, um, we get into some of the fad diets that we have um, that are very popular and continue to be popular. Um, so again, I, I just have my students be able to kind of, one of the goals that I have is for them to be able to look at some of these fad diets and, and kind of apply some of the, the science that we've learned in class to be able to gauge or, or understand that. And again, kind of fall into that idea that there are no bad foods. Um, and then genetically modified organisms, that's one of the things um, so many students are afraid of it when they don't even know what it is or have a, an under, a scientific understanding of it. Um, and then we talk about the, the different various uh, principles behind it. And the, so we, I think that's a, a big issue for me as well. But there are so many different myths um, and in nutrition, and we're all coming in with these different ideas about what is good and what is bad, um, or all these different myths uh, that it, it makes it hard. It makes it a little bit of a challenge to teach nutrition. Uh, because of that. And I think that that's actually fostered my ideas that I just want people to question, to use the scientific principles um, that we, we go over in class um, and be able to apply that to their, their choices. So GMOs in particular, I've had some, it, it did, I, I've had interesting, uh, to say it politely, conversations with colleagues and friends on, on typically on social media about uh, genetically modified organisms. Uh, mm -hmm. What would you say to your class or, well, to a listening audience uh, to clarify the, perhaps the demonization or, or uh, well, why GMOs are given this bad rap? So how would you explain the, so, okay, I'll, I'll give you my explanation and then you're welcome to add to it or correct me okay. if I'm wrong. Please do. Uh, to give an example, the apples that are, are available, not available, that grow in the wild are terribly tiny. And uh, over years of, of cultivation and, and, you know, you, you pick the ones that are bigger and then you plant their seeds, you pick the ones that are the biggest there and then you plant their seeds. Even though it's not something being done in a test tube in a lab uh, or in a Petri dish, you're still choosing... Uh, I guess the the species that you want to propagate would that be an example of genetically oh, modified organization? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, that's a wonderful example. And when we begin to really understand how that we as humans have influenced the foods that we eat for, for so many years, um, and that the majority of our foods are genetically modified, that it becomes less of a demonized um, arena. I do find it incredibly interesting to, to question why we do as a society have this big fear um, of genetically modified organisms. And then I've actually looked into and I've actually questioned this. Um, and there's several different theories about, about that. You know, from a psychological perspective, we, we are afraid of the unknown. Um, and we are afraid of things that we don't truly understand. Um, and it's easier to, to fear something. Uh, and maybe from an evolutionary standpoint, that's kept us alive. We are afraid of these new things. Um, and if, so that, that's one possible theory. Um, and just the influence of, of government and big business in our food supply, that's always, that's had some questionable hiccups in the past. Uh, so maybe that's a, a contributing factor as well. Um, I, I honestly don't know, and I do find it really fascinating um, about our food supply and how that has been negatively impacted with these kind of disrespect to the scientific community um, and how we, we really fear science in general as a society. Um, so I, I, do, I do feel that that is definitely a negative leaning in our society. But, so, um, well, now that you identify that in your, if you know, you're the leader of the world or you have massive influence over all the people in the world, how would you, or what would you do or say to convince people, not that GMOs are not all bad or not all good, that that's, it's, it's not an adjective that should be used for, for describing mm -hmm. GMOs, but how would you, try to influence people to use either, you know, the scientific model or, or critical thinking or scientific principles, how would you, what would you say to people that perhaps don't use uh, th those modalities of thinking and try to persuade them to believe in those principles or not believe in them, but at least not question them? Goodness, that's a really good question. Um, I think that people really want to, uh, to ultimately have control of their own lives and, and definitely having control over what they eat is so important to them. So if we could be positive, I think definitely coming from a, a very positive stance would be important um, and not demonizing anything and not leading with fear, but leading with hope and leading with the idea that this is what this particular plant can provide for us. Um, it can help us save water. It can be drought resistant. Uh, and in these times, this is what, you know, we can lead. So leading with positive ideas, leading with, all right, this is what could be beneficial to our government, or this could be, not the government, but, but uh, our, our society, um, you know, as we face issues of climate change and by utilizing some of these um, crops, um, and maybe just, you know, again, just being very positive. I think that would be um, 
very beneficial and not not leading with fear and not leading with ignorance, but leading with just uh, a positivity in what these things can do for us. So and I don't think that that. No, no, please go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I don't think that we, we learn a lot of, um, I, I guess I, I, I have to tell a quick story. I read a book um, many years. I love to read. Uh, and I read a book many years ago. It was written by an Australian. And, and it was, the, uh, the title was The Unknown Terrorist. And in the book, he tells a story about how this woman is portrayed as a terrorist. And everybody kind of co- cohesively starts hating her. And she's completely innocent. And it's just a, a, a bad uh by a job against her, uh, but what he describes, and I had never really thought about it in the book, is that we as a society, as a human instinct, we need an enemy. And that's how we control people is by identifying the enemy. And so uh, I thought that, oh my, I thought, oh my goodness, how, what an interesting idea. And I never really kind of thought about that. Um, and so why is food our enemy? And I find that just an interesting idea. Why do we have to have this idea or this concept of bad in terms of our food? Uh, so as, as I mentioned to you before, one of the ideas that I try to provide to my students is that there are no good or bad foods. It's all food. Um, and you know, getting back to the idea of a proper portion size um, and being good and kind to ourselves. But it was yeah. a good book. <laughs> To add to that list, if you ever are in the mood for some science fiction that has the same underlying theme, uh, there's a wonderful book called State of Fear by Michael Crichton. And it was, I think, I I love Michael Crichton. Uh, It was his first foray into, I mean, he talked about politics a fair bit, but the, the central theme was that, you know, there were different agencies, and I read this a very long time ago, so I'm probably messing up some of the details, but the, the general theme was that uh, there were some bad entities and some good entities, and the bad entities uh, were trying to expose the good entities as such to erode public uh, trust, I guess, in the good entities mm-hmm. by saying mm-hmm. that, you know, the only true currency of power is fear is that Mm. if you can make people afraid of something you can control and manipulate their emotions and if you take that away or if you you know take the the the, i guess the the cloak away and you identify uh Mm -hmm. you know these individuals are trying to strike fear in your hearts uh, as a way of trying to control you or as a way of keeping you subjugated, perhaps. I don't know if I'm, if I'm using the right word there, but uh, and then obviously that combined with a whole bunch of science fiction. Um, but I, I would recommend it. It was one of the books that, oh. you know, was not the typical Crichton writing about dinosaurs and gorillas that can talk uh, kind <laughs> of stuff. But it, it was his probably his first or second, you know, writing more about the political arena and his own commentary on that, uh, about how he thought that, again, if we don't have this common enemy, we don't unite behind, uh, you know, that cause or 
to look at it from the other side, you don't really control someone unless you can make them afraid of you or fear something else. Yes. And then, you know, say, hey, I can protect you from that fear. If you band behind mm -hmm. me, you know, we can lead and, and do whatever needs to be done. So I, I would recommend that. It was a wonderful book. I might revisit it. I would definitely look into that. I'm always looking for good books. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite book uh, or top three? Yeah. I, I know that that's a bad question. So best three oh. books that you've ever read. Oh, my goodness. That is a definite hard question. Um, I would say my favorite all-time book is A Razor's Edge by W. Somerset Magnum. He's more well-known for Of Human Bondage. Um, but A Razor's Edge is, I'm a big uh, proponent for the library. I love the library. Um, so, but I own this book, A Razor's Edge. And it's about a man who, um, it was set before uh, in Chicago uh, before World War One, and he goes in and he drives an ambulance um, for World War One, and he comes back, and he realizes that all he really wants to do in life is to learn, is to read, is, and to understand, and so he, it, the book follows this path way of this man and he has all these different influences all these people are like no you should go here you should get this job you should go to college and he's like no I'm just going to read and so it follows all of his friends and he has ultimately the best life and he had the courage to step away and just do what he wanted and to learn and to read um, and to try to understand the world and I always, it's, it's my favorite book, uh, and I often dip into it at various different chapters, um, and I always would have liked to have the courage to do something like that, but instead, I always had the job, I went to college, I got, you know, I've always, I followed this, this more of a prescribed pathway, but I always, I always thought, how wonderful would it be to have the courage to do what you want? even if it is just to go and read and to understand and to learn. Do you think it's just courage that would be needed? Or I, I don't know about the book, but uh, in today's world, I would think financial means would be perhaps necessary as well. Or do you think that that's not uh, a necessary presupposition or a precondition for living a life of, uh, well, wanting to learn? The value. Of value, hmm. sure. Hmm. Well, definitely there is the financial constraints for that. Um, he ends up driving a taxi um, and he always travels with a book in his taxi. Um, so there's definitely, definitely that constraint. And I personally have a... Um, what my sister refers to as a, a negative relationship with money. Um, I find money, she, she believes my, my, my sister is uh, uh, in, in finance and she believes that money is a tool and that it should be this tool. I have a, a bad relationship with money as I view money as security. 
And I don't like to spend money, but I like to have money uh, because it represents uh, protection against the chaos of life. So definitely, I think to have that pursuit, those higher dreams to be able to follow and to read and, and to have that, that pursuit, you would definitely need that financial stability uh, in today's society. Would your sister it, say the same thing? Um, the reason I ask is because you mentioned that you know, you don't like to spend a lot of money, but you like to have it or you like to save it for a rainy day mm-hmm. or as a, as, a, as a shield from the chaos of the world. Uh, you mentioned that your sister sees it as a tool because, well, she's perhaps more well-versed with it. Uh, would she give the same answer uh, to the question that, you know, is financial uh, solvency or financial stability necessary in order to step away from... Uh, well, the world and the, and the rat race of the world and just read books and learn? Um, I, I do think that she would give it a, a different answer. You know, I'm the oldest um, in the family. And there were three of us. She's the, she's the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that, you know, even just those we're five years apart, even those five years apart, um, and having that responsibility of being oldest and trying to um, kind of take care of my brothers and my sister, that that negatively impacted how I viewed the world and, and money and, and financial situations. Um, so that that kind of fell on me. And so she has more of a lackadaisical viewpoint about life that you know things will always work out where I'm no we have to we have to plan we have to prepare we have to have something and <laughs> so I, I think that I was negatively impacted about that in life I think really truly um, that has led me um, to nutrition um, I had a professor once that told a story that there are two people there's two two basic types of people that get into nutrition. There's the people who are really into health and really into that type of thing. And then there's the people who have kind of a questionable relationship with food, who maybe have been hungry, who are, who have other issues with food. Um, And that's how I got into it. Um, I grew up hungry. with again, you know, that financial issue with my family. Um, and it was my responsibility, or I felt I took that on um, to make sure that my, my brother, and my sister had enough to eat. So, you know, if, if someone else is taking care of you and looking out for you and making sure that you do have something to eat, then you can have that more of a lackadaisical relationship with 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 money but if you know what it's like to be hungry and if you know what it's like to not have the means to be able then I think that fear sticks with you and it has with me and uh, that's influenced how I see the world 
And getting back to that book, if I had had the courage or the means, and I guess that's maybe why that's my favorite book, because he did, and he just walked away, and he didn't care about the trappings, uh, and what he found important was just sitting and reading a book and learning. A couple of things come to mind. Uh, my parents invariably listen to these things after you know a couple of weeks, but I think they would listen to what you just described in terms of financial security and being the oldest and you know all, all the stuff that you mentioned just now. And I think you would fare very well in, I don't want to say just in India, but perhaps in Eastern society, uh, whether it's China or Japan or Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, you know, Afghanistan, Nepal. The, the Eastern world would not, describe perhaps what you had described as a negative attitude towards money or a negative relationship with money. And that mm -hmm. might very well be because I would say that there's a, you know, as much as we talk about income inequality in the United States, that chasm is significantly wider and deeper in other parts of the world where you know, the, the richest man in India has a 1200 bedroom house and he has an entire building. It's not even a home. It's just a compound where, you know, 1200 people are there or 13, maybe it's 1200 rooms or 1200 people, uh, you know, are, are there to serve his every desire and to take care of his family and, you know, wash the cars and drive people and, and go get food. So there's that, and on the other end of the spectrum, and it's not to say that the United States doesn't have those same problems, but I think having lived in, in different parts of the world, I, I can, well, I don't want to say safely say, but I, I think I am correct in saying that the income inequality and the social disparity between different um, strata of society is significantly wider and deeper in, in other parts of the world. So I do think that there's validity to, you know, if you don't have that stability growing up or at any point of time in your life, you do save for a rainy day. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, my, my, I literally just had this conversation with my dad. He, he called me and he randomly will call me out of nowhere and he said, uh, so are you contributing the most you can to your 401k? I said, dad, we don't have a 401k. We have a pension plan. Yes, but are you contributing the most that you can to that plan? Dad, it's capped at 3% or 3.3%. Well, find out if you can contribute more. <laughs> dad, it's, it's capped. It, it, it's, it's a pension plan. You can't, you know, I can open up another account and I have. Uh, to, to put money away for retirement. And, uh, you know, th those are things that keep him up at night. And, you know, he's done very, very well for his family. You know, he's built, he built my grandparents a home when I wasn't even born. Uh, you know, he's helped out other family members. So uh, through hard work and dedication, he has done very well to be in a position where he can help other people. But he, a couple of years ago, he got his dream job in, in New York City, and he still doesn't have a car. <laughs> he, he just refuses to buy one for himself. So I think that that would perhaps be the one place. When, when you were talking, I was thinking, this sounds exactly like my dad. This sounds like you know, <laughs> him justifying or rationalizing the decision to not buy a car 
when he could very well afford to buy one. You know, I, I know mm -hmm. that they have enough money to buy even a used car, but he, he just says, <laughs> no, you know, my, uh, my sister was attending PA school in California. So he said, you know, I have to support her. And then you know, I am financially independent now, but in their head, if something were to happen because I don't have tenure or I don't have continuing contract, they, they have to keep putting money away for mm -hmm. me as well. And then, you know, they have a home in Coral Springs. So he says, you know, I have four households on my mind. If I have four households and my sister's married, she's married to a very, very <laughs> nice man. Uh, and she's, you know, she has a job and he has a job, but in his weird Indian head, and I wonder if I'm going to inherit it as well, or if I have, I think I have because, well, I have the same relationship with, with money or with, uh, well, a story just popped in my head. As a kid, we were, my mom, you know, my dad went to work and my mom balanced all the, you know, she managed all the, the money for the household. I, I wanted, I, I enjoyed reading as well. And on the way home from school, on the left-hand side of the road, there were three bookstores back to back to back or right next to each other. The third one had, uh, the first two were more like academic school-related textbooks. Uh, and then the third one was, you know, fiction, nonfiction, books that you wouldn't have to read for school for biology or chemistry or things like that. They didn't have like stationery for everyday use, but they had books that you would read for pleasure. And I would always walk in and, you know, my mom would walk with me or we would be driving home and I would say, hey, can I buy a book? And I never got no to that question. You need a book or you want a book. It doesn't matter whether we have the money or not, we'll make it. You go read because that was, you know, the pursuit of knowledge was one of those things that they, the pursuit of uh, knowledge. they, they encouraged and they, they watered that plant. Mm -hmm. And I wanted these glow in the dark stickers that my classmates had. And I was probably in second or third grade. And because everyone else has it, you want it as well. Mm -hmm. And I remember going into the bookstore and saying, mom, I want these, or could I have these? I, I knew better than to say, I want these. And she said, no, we don't have the money for it. And I think the next day on a, on a whim, I said, can I have a novel? And she said, what kind of novel? Or is it like an Archie comic? Cause I was not allowed to read those. They weren't educationally motivated. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, 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 it, it, I, I, someone told me that there's a new no novel by Robin Cook and it's a medical mystery, this, that, and the other. Uh, okay, what, you know, we can stop by uh, the Indian Bookstore, I think it was the name of the IBS, Indian Bookstore. And she said, oh, we can stop by IBS on the way home. So that, I think, at a very early age, I didn't have to go hungry. Uh, thanks entirely in part to my parents and, and uh, for the comfortable childhood that they, they gave me. Um, but when it came to discretionary spending, I, it wasn't that, well, we probably had the money, but again, like you, my mom, you know, had the mindset of we need to save for a rainy day. And if it's, and you know, a book that he wants, sure. That's not a rainy day fund sort of withdrawal. That's a, that's an investment perhaps. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I think this is not to say that you don't have a negative relationship with your, with money. Your sister might be right that it ought to be viewed as a tool, but I think in other parts of the world, 
you would be championed and lauded as a as a wise person who's saving money for you know a rainy day or for the chaos of the world. And I think I, I'm just. But sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, in other parts of the world, definitely, maybe, but here in the United States, it, I, I do feel that, you know, it, it's not, that's not the typical viewpoint. Does that bother you? Of how bother you? It doesn't bother me. No, it doesn't. Um, well, sometimes it does. Sometimes in what sometimes sense? I, um, I'll give you an example, and I don't know if that helps <laughs> or, or makes things worse. Uh, I was in high school when I sat in a, in, in a fellow classmate's car. So when I was in, we moved to the United States in 11th grade. And my dad had a Hyundai Sonata at the time, which was a, a bigger and a more comfortable car than anything we had driven in India. So when I came to the United States, I was like, oh, my dad's loaded. This is amazing. Uh, <laughs> not realizing at the time that, you know, th those were perhaps not luxury vehicles. They were big enough for the four of us. But, you know, on the scale of BMWs and Mercedes and Audis and all these other luxury <laughs> brands, uh, Hyundai was not, you know, on, on one of them or on that list or any of, the, of those lists. And I remember sitting in a BMW that Jungmin Lee, he ended up going to Harvard. He was valedictorian, I think, of our, of, our, of our class. He had been given by his parents a BMW. Mm. This is, you know, an 11th or 12th grader. I, I don't remember what year it was. But I remember sitting inside, closing the door, and all of a sudden feeling transported into you know some alternate dimension i couldn't hear anything from the outside i didn't hear any road noise i didn't hear you know cars driving by it was just the two of us talking and it was at that moment that i realized that you know there is a difference between a honda sonata and a bmw whatever it was <laughs> seven series six series whatever fancy car it was and Ever since then, even, even my dad and I have had these conversations where he says, you know, it's, it's my dream or, you know, those daydreams that we have of he wants to drive an Audi and he wants to experience that, not just, you know, on a test drive or having driven with someone else, but he wants to, he wants to be able to ignore the sounds of the world, but he doesn't allow himself the, the freedom to do that, even though he has the mm. money. To, to go mm -hmm. ahead and purchase something or, you know, lease it or whatever the case might be. And I fear that I've had that same lizard brain implanted into my brain as well, because even though mm -hmm. I might have the means to buy a Tesla, I don't. But if I did mm -hmm. and I weren't as financially careful about the things that I've, you know, chosen to spend the money on over the past few years, I could have made different decisions instead of sending more money to my 401k. I, I could have, you know, taken that extra money and, and leased a BMW or an Audi and I could have kept up with the Joneses. But <laughs> it wasn't so much that, you know, I, it bothered me that other people had it. But sometimes I wonder, and it's not, you know, a criticism of my parents or, or how they raised me, but I wonder 
if those people have it right, and it's not a, a bother mm. to say, you know, I wonder what they think of me, but like your sister, I wonder if money really ought to be used as a tool as opposed to, mm. uh, you know, a security blanket or, or some sort of a trust fall uh, safety measure. Uh, so yeah, I, I drive a Honda Civic and it's a very humble car, nothing fancy about it. It's the base model. But there are times when I see that Tesla sitting in, in the parking lot and I say, hey, I, we have the means to go out and, and lease it. I don't think I can buy one, but I could definitely lease one. But I'd rather save the money and, and save it for something else or put it away towards retirement. Or So yeah, that's the, that's the context I was thinking when I said, when I asked mm-hmm. that question, if it bothered you. Oh, definitely. I, um, the cars, maybe that's more of a gender issue. Um, I, <laughs> but uh, I would definitely, I've, I've experienced it. I was actually talking to my daughter. I have a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old daughter, um, two daughters. Uh, I was actually talking uh, to my 15-year-old that I would like to have a fancy purse. And maybe that's more of a female issue, obviously. Um, but I, I currently my my purse is from Target that I got on clearance. <laughs> it's functional. It works. Um, but when I get in, typically uh, in a, a group of other women, um, I I do feel that I mean, you know they can know that my purse was from the the clearance rack at Target, uh, and so that bothers me. And I then I tell myself. Why? Why? I have that you know kind of similar conversation with yourself. I, I could afford a fancy purse, but this, but I I'm, I'm more comfortable with the purse that I have. But then I always I think maybe I should. But I, anyway, uh, I so think, it's no, an no, ongoing you're... battle, definitely. Maybe it, it is, and I think the the car and the purse it, it probably is a gender dependent thing. I don't care about my wallet. I think I got it for twenty bucks somewhere. I, <laughs> I I've never had to think about it again. Uh, but I think that the the things that they represent are probably the same. That you know, it, it's right. a matter of utility as opposed to a matter of desire. That you know, they do the yes. job. They carry the things that they need to carry. In terms of my car, it's me, and in terms of your purse, it's you know money, credit cards, or whatever it is that you put in your purse. Uh, yeah. So how do you quiet that voice, or have you just learned to negotiate with it and and just not mind it so much when it speaks up? Um. It, well, it's an ongoing thing. Maybe it's actual. I guess the, the more deeper picture, our our, our idea, our conversation there would be. I, I, my goal, I would love to fit in. And so if I could have that purse and be like everyone else, for example, I could fit in. And I guess maybe it speaks to this underlying fear that I have that I don't fit in. And uh, again, that kind of, I, I, I understand personally for me, myself, that that translates from my kind of chaotic childhood where I, I never fit in uh, and I moved around a lot. Um, Again, you know, I went to four different high schools by the time I was a junior in high school. Um, and so I never, I never had that acceptance. And maybe at the same time, I want that acceptance, but I don't know. I, I guess I battle with myself internally. Do I deserve it? Do I, you know, 
or I, I know there's this larger threat that I have to, um, you know, fight against. So it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make peace with myself, I guess, and accept myself and uh, be happy with me, be content with me. Um, so that's what I'm working towards. It's a lifelong. <laughs> that, that word deserve is, is, has been, or I brought it up in conversation with a couple of other people where uh, someone questioned, you know, why don't you like being called Mr. Katyal or Professor Katyal? And it, it's one of those, again, it's probably, and are you sure you're not Indian? Because you sound remarkably Indian. <laughs> uh, it, it's one of those things where, you know, it, that's my dad's name and he has earned the right and he deserves to be called Chief Engineer Katyal or Mr. Katyal mm -hmm. or professor or, you know, terms of, of respect, I think ought to be earned. And I don't think that just having a degree means that, you know, you've earned it. And again, that's the weird Indian, you know, brain talking that just because I, you know, I have a master's or I have a, a graduate degree in something does not entitle me to the same respect that my dad has earned over the years of being an excellent mentor to other engin junior engineers and, you know, being very good at his job and being one of the best in the world at it to where, you know, there's not too many other people in the world that are qualified to do what he does or that do what he does. Uh, so is that something, uh, I feel as if I don't deserve to be called Mr. Katyal yet. I haven't, in my opinion, risen <laughs> to that level. So do you think that when you feel that you deserve a purse, do you think that that will be married to that idea of wanting to fit in with your group of friends? Or do you think that's a separate thing? I don't know if that question makes any sense. So um, there are two things that you mentioned. No, I, One was wanting I, to fit in and the other was, well, I don't know if I deserve it. Hmm. So are those two ideas married to each other or are they independent of each other? in your opinion? Um, oh, I, I definitely think that they are connected. I definitely think that having that acceptance and you know, deserving of that um, are, are definitely, definitely connected. Um, for sure. And I think the irony would be that if I ever did feel, you know, that deserving of that acceptance, that it, the purse wouldn't matter. I have a, a strange feeling that that is in fact the case, that I don't think that it's the purse. I think it's entirely within our heads. But again, what do I know? I, I'm just a lowly mathematician. I think once we feel that we deserve the car or the purse, then the purse and the car wouldn't even matter. And you could, you know, I, I've exactly. had the same right. experience with, I had a Corolla and I hated it because I had a Civic <laughs> and some lady ran a red light and totaled it completely. And to save money, and my parents were both, I think my dad was in New York, my mom was in India for some reason, and Julie was in Canada when this happened. Uh, she was visiting with her mom. So I was alone here left with my thoughts and that's typically not a good, you know, it's either a recipe for, I'm going to go buy a, a Maserati or I'm going to go buy a beat up car. 
I, I landed somewhere in the middle, but closer to the beat up car. I bought a Corolla because it was, I think, $2,500 cheaper than the Civic at the time. And I said, no, 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 we need to save this money and you know, blah, blah, blah. Every single person in my family said, you love that Civic as, you know, as simple yeah. as it is, you enjoy driving it. You don't complain about it. You don't moan, you don't do other things and you're going to hate buying this, this Corolla. I said, no, 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 it's the same. It's, it's $2,500 cheaper. It doesn't sound as good. And I can't press the, the fuel tank thing and it opens. I have to, you know, pull a lever and it does have an emergency brake handle. And those were things that I, I enjoyed not having in, in the Civic. Mm -hmm. So no, 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 for $2,500, I'll recondition myself. I bought that car at night and I woke up in the morning when I went downstairs to go get breakfast or something. And I, I panicked. I thought my new car had been stolen. <laughs> and only later, like five minutes of walking around panicked, I, I realized that my car was sitting in the parking lot. It wasn't the same color that I thought it was. Oh, no. So I had, again, I purchased it at night thinking, oh, it's you know, cheap and you know, they're giving me a good deal and it's December 31st, blah, blah, blah. And for a year, I, I just kept complaining about it. I said, I hate this car. This is not the car I thought I was buying. This is terrible. And then eventually they said, will you please just go buy a Civic again? Uh, and I, I was very happy when the car, when I was told that I was, the car was getting detailed car came up I, I paid the check or wrote the check and the car came around and the guy sat next to me for that for probably the first 30 seconds I was happy and then after that I was like yeah I'm gonna drive this from from home to school and from school to home and I remember Julie calling me and saying oh do you like your new car yeah it's a new car it smells nice it, it smells like the new car smell but outside of that, I, I didn't really feel, uh, you know, the, the joy of having to drive a new car or, you know, the fact that I was back in my Civic that I enjoyed. So I do think that, you know, once you feel deserving of a Civic or a purse, whatever, you know, your preference, I wonder if, if the purse is even going to matter at that stage or if you're just happy, hey, I deserve it. Right. All right. On yeah. to perhaps slightly... Uh, less deep questions. These were some questions that came from individuals that I interviewed in the past, if you don't mind. Okay. You did mention, uh, no, I'll leave that for the end. So the last individual posed the following questions. What are some, what is something that you're thankful for? Oh, goodness. Um, I am thankful for so many different things, um, but I, I think currently I would have to put my health and my family's health at the top, especially as we work our way through this pandemic. Um, everyone in my family's healthy, we're doing good. Um, you know, we, we all individually struggle with different issues. My mom has pulmonary hypertension, is on full-time oxygen, but she's doing well. Uh, my brother-in-law uh, recently had to have 911 called because he had a seizure. Uh, he has a brain tumor uh, and they've scheduled an MRI uh, and he thinks there may be a 
recurrence. But we're all here now. And, you know, you, don't, you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. But today we're doing good. So I'm thankful for that. What advice would you give your younger self? Oh, my goodness. Um, take the chances. Um, go for it. There were so many things that I would have liked to have done that I didn't have the courage to do. When I was in graduate school, um, I actually um, flew out um, to the Johnson's um, uh, Space Center, and I met with um, dietitians. And they, at that time, this was back in the 1990s, they were working on a food system for the colonization of Mars. Wow. And there were diet, there, I met with a dietitian. Wow. I know. And they met with a dietitian who worked with um, the astronauts. And, you know, she kind of, and that was like my dream job. And I, I would have loved to have pursued that aspect. And there was someone from uh, the University of Florida that had uh, gone in that direction. And that's really kind of what I would have loved to have done. But I got married instead. And I moved to South Florida. <laughs> I took a different path. Um, and I wish that it had, my younger self had courage that I could pursue what I wanted instead of taking the more prescribed path. Fair enough. Uh, this gets deeper. What do you think is the meaning of life? The meaning of life. Hmm. That is, I, I don't know. Um, I don't think I have an answer for that, what the meaning of life is. It's an interesting, an interesting question. Um, is it family? Is it love? Is it relationships? Um, I don't know. Do you think people figure that out as they get older or as they gain more life experiences? Or do you think that that's just one of those questions that remains unanswered? If, if people get what? As they, as they get older, perhaps, or as they gain question? more. Uh, do you think people figure it out eventually as they get older or as they gain more life experience? Or do you think it's one of those um, questions that just doesn't get answered and everyone else, you know, people might have different preferences and different choices and different answers to that question. Uh, assuming that they answered it or assuming that they figured it out. But do you think that it's a question that ever gets figured out? Or do you think that you need more life experience and more time and more marination in the bowl of life, uh, before you can figure out what's um, outside the bowl? Oh, I definitely, I definitely do. I think that it's a question that never is, is truly answered. Uh, and maybe it's more the pursuit of that question that's the meaning of life. And you know, constantly questioning, constantly wanting to, to know and to learn, to experience. I think that's one of the things that I like about reading um, is that I get to look at other people's perspectives and other people's viewpoints. Um, and as we, or as I have gotten older, um, I definitely think that that you know, people come from so many different experiences and how we 
grow up and our, our families of origin that influences how we see the world. And I definitely think that it's an ongoing pursuit. And I, I, I don't know that we get smarter as we get older, but maybe we become less able to, or maybe, I don't know, I can't put it into words. <laughs> That's okay. Um, this was an older question. Uh, but I think I'm going to make it a staple. Why did you agree to be interviewed by me? I liked your idea that you wanted to meet other people. And one of the things, or get to know other people at the college, one of the, um, I, I feel kind of isolated at work at, at the college. I, I'm the only one who teaches nutrition. And so I don't have other people that, that teach it there at uh, the Lake Worth campus. Um, and I'm surrounded um, in my office by people who teach chemistry and biology. Uh, so it's different um, disciplines. And they're not even in my, um, my cohort. Um, so I, I feel isolated and I, Coupled with the idea that I'm, I recognize, self-recognize, I am deeply an introvert, um, that I have a hard time meeting people, um, sustaining conversations with, with people that I've just met, or how, knowing how to act in a social manner. Um, so I, I, do, I thought that this would be a good way um, to meet others and to hear other people's stories. Um, very cool to go against my introvert <laughs> nature <laughs> i am a self-prescribed and, and perhaps other people would agree as well my, my significant other certainly would that uh, i am definitely perhaps the introvert of introverts so this has been a learning experience for me <laughs> as well to to learn how to maintain a conversation for longer than 10 minutes and usually it's mm -hmm. good when other people talk a lot so uh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, for agreeing <laughs> to do this. Um, this question is somewhat ill-formed, but I hope that by the time I say it, it, it comes out correctly. Uh, Kim Copeland, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago in her, I think she was episode, the fourth one out, she she likened this experience of, of having this conversation to a blind date, but with no romantic <laughs> underpinnings, where, you know, you can... <laughs> You can relax because you're not trying to impress the other individual. Yeah. And I thought that that was a great, uh, great description of, you know, me talking to people. So I had met Kim before she had come to my classes. So I, I knew her in a very arm length professional way, but I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know her perhaps at the personal level that I got to know her at, uh, I had never met you, or I, I knew that you existed at the campus or at the college, but I you know, didn't know anything about you. You had never come to my class. So I thought that this would be a great way of, I, I was trying to weave it into the title of the podcast somehow, but I thought that the description was very apt, that it is kind of like a blind date, especially with people that I've never met before, truly never met before. 
But because there are no romantic underpinnings or expectations that you know you have to impress the other person, you, you kind of have a less stressful interaction, or there's less stress injected into that environment. Uh, and as a result, you can get to know people without having to feel the need to impress them. Uh, so tell me or tell us, this was the question that was suggested. Tell us something that you wouldn't share on a first date, presuming that, you know, this is our first non-romantic first date. So what is something that you would not have shared, uh, or that you thought before you, you know, joined the Zoom meeting and you said, I'm never going to talk about that. Oh my goodness. Um, my fa favorite food is butter popcorn, <laughs> which uh, as, as a dietitian, um, you know, that a lot of people find that incredibly strange. I love movie theater, butter popcorn, and, um, I really do. Um, so I guess that's something that, you know, there's this expectation that I'm going to eat perfectly all the time um, or, you know, but I, I do have these things that um, I, I used to joke around with my with my brother uh, that if I had to pick my last meal on earth, it would be movie theater butter popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a very, very low bar you've set for yourself, but it's hey, it's your favorite meal. You can eat whatever you like. Uh, uh, that's what would make me the happiest. <laughs> I think uh, Julie, my girlfriend, she doesn't like to admit to it, but I think, I don't think that it's her favorite meal to have or the favorite. I, I don't think that that would be her last meal as it were, but on many occasions, I think she's asked me to take her out to a movie just so that she could have the popcorn. Oh, definitely. So she enjoys oh. it as well. And it, it's a weird mm -hmm. thing. I, I was never fond of popcorn, buttered or, or otherwise. Uh, didn't really oh. grow up with it. In India, you don't really oh. have popcorn. I think when you go to movies, well, maybe you do. I don't know. I, just, I guess I never enjoyed it so much. Mm. Uh, she's a fiend when it comes to popcorn. I, I love popcorn. And I think, and I've, I've thought about it, like, why do I love popcorn so much? But when I was little, I, it's one of my first memories. Um, my mother would make it on the stove and we'd pour into a bowl and then we would sit on the couch with this bowl of warm popcorn and she would read to me. And so I think in a sense, the, the popcorn is love, it's security, it's comfort. It's perfect. It's a, it's a lovely reason to want to eat popcorn as your last meal. <laughs> All right. And for the last question, what title would you give to your episode and the podcast at large? But first, let's say we, we tackle your My episode. My goodness. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I, now that I'm thinking of that, other people might really be listening to this. Um, don't worry about them. No I'm one not listens. Not as weird it's... in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. You don't come across as weird at all. The, um, the only eccentricity that I can think of is is popcorn. But I don't think that that's eccentric. If I if my girlfriend didn't love popcorn, then maybe I would think 
a dietitian that likes popcorn. That's <laughs> weird, but I don't think that that's strange at all. Okay, so then I guess I lied. Well, Second to last question. Uh, why do you think you're weird or what's weird about you? What is weird about me? Yeah, you said I'm not so weird in real what life. So what? why do you consider uh, um, yourself to be weird or what do you consider to be idiosyncratic? Oh, gosh. Um, I talk to my dog. As uh, probably does the half the population on Earth. <laughs> so I don't think that that's odd. Um, I I love, I think I, I do have a, a weird sense of humor. Um, I like to laugh. Um, what it, what it's comics a would you say you enjoy? Or what, what would you say your sense of humor aligns with? Or who rather? Oh my goodness. Um, that's, that's a tough question. That's even more tough than, um, what my favorite book is. Um, there is a lady, um, who is from Knoxville and she's hilarious. <laughs> um, I, I, I follow her. Um, so I definitely more of a, uh, a down home, uh, country, um, look on life. Uh, I don't want to be able to take myself too seriously. I, I definitely, I, I find that very humorous to be able to laugh at myself. Um, and I do, I, um, uh, I, I, I don't like people who are cruel or make fun of other people. Um, but more laughing at myself. I mean, I'm fine with being weird too. <laughs> I don't think that there's anything wrong with people being weird. So I, I couldn't pin yeah. anything, you know, when you said that. I, I was taken by surprise. I didn't think that you did or said anything that was weird. So I said, oh, she, she oh, thinks God. she's weird. She's one of my people. And, I, you know, we are a very closely guarded group. We don't just let anyone in. So Exactly. Exactly. Well, it was an well, absolute... That. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and getting to know you. And I hope, uh, well, I hope to do this again, if you wouldn't mind. I would love to. If you to. have time to spare, I would love to, to talk more about, well, nuclear power plants and, and popcorn and what <laughs> books you, your, your mom read to you. And there's a whole bunch of other questions that have popped up. And I know that after my parents listen to this uh, conversation, they're going to say, oh, yes, go go ask her for advice. Go, don't listen to her sister. But uh so there are other questions that I know that they will have and, and share with me. But again, it was an absolute delight talking to you. And, and thank you again for agreeing to help thank me with you. this. I really enjoyed it. And it was good to get to know you. Thank you. Pleasure's mine. Enjoy the rest of your morning. Take care. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Shalon. Here's a sneak peek at the episode next week. Not that I'm at my best at 10 o'clock at night, but I've been on the phone with students at 10 o'clock at night because that's what's best for them and that's what's going to help them be successful. Until next time, for another 88 times, take care. <laughs>